Hey there, Servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. And what do I have for you today? Well, today we're going to talk about the political crisis in Tunisia, a secession trial in Nigeria, and social unrest around the world. And we'll pick apart some of the key points of interest amidst all that social unrest, and we'll see where we go from there. All that and more, coming up. Let's get right into the rapid-fire news. So... We have the Prime Minister of Lebanon promising to form a government. He's, and by that they mean government coalition. You know, um, the parliamentary system. When they say government, they mean the, the government coalition. Um, so I feel the need to stress that. That's, otherwise, I'll forget myself that they're not talking about the entire government, but rather the governing coalition. So the majority in the parliament. But the specifics of the parliament system aside, the Prime Minister of Lebanon promises to form a governing coalition with the goal of being able to implement the French economic recovery plan. So we see little little hints and signs of France's, e- um, well, yeah, their economic influence and their political influence that led to this development really start to take root in Lebanon, especially if they do form a governing a governing coalition that goes through with this, because they probably will form a governing coalition at some point, um, whether that's sooner rather than later, uh, has yet to be seen, but um, the fact that they're going to implement this economic recovery plan, and the fact that their prime minister is making this the goal when he's putting together his the government, um, shows you how fast the French influence here has risen amidst this crisis that Lebanon is in. And we talked about it, and we'll see how the neighbors respond, because we have a list of countries who may or may not get involved here. Uh, My eyes are on Turkey now to see what Turkey does, especially as Turkey's reaching out into its neighborhood again. We saw uh, Erdogan went to Cyprus uh, last week, and he reaffirmed his belief that there should be a two-state solution. We went over um, why the EU, Greece, and Cyprus are obviously against it. Um, it would legitimize the zone of occupation in the north as a sovereign state. And we go over why Turkey, northern Cyprus, and Azerbaijan are backed it, which was that it would legitimize the northern cyprus as a sovereign entity which could then interact with turkey as a sovereign entity rather than being in this unofficial space similar to taiwan where it's a one china policy <laughs> except instead of being one turkey it's a or one china it's a one cyprus policy but we'll see how that goes and we'll see if turkey um tries its hand um, straight south into Lebanon. See what they do there, if they do anything at all. Because it could be that the French just run away with this, and, you know, they establish an economic colony in the Middle East. And that would have massive implications, uh, particularly military ones, as the French are really keen on putting their military in places. Uh, and fighting rebel groups and terrorist organizations and the Middle East is a hotbed for those. So we could see the French pull a China on this one and negotiate some sort of deal when the when Lebanon inevitably can't pay back on the economic aid money. So we, we might see France pull a China here, but I, I want to move on because I do have... Um, the big things Tunisia and Nigeria to get to, and the rest of the rapid-fire news. But, yeah, you know what? No, no, no. We'll we'll take our time, because there's lots of unrest going on around the world, and I really do want to pick apart some of these key points of interest 
of which Lebanon is one, because they're we we've gone over their crisis multiple times and the developments around them in response to it. Um, if I'm not mistaken, I have some more stuff on Lebanon. Yes, Lebanon is suffering power outages, really, really bad power outages. Some of them have been as long as 23 hours. Good Lord, 23 hours in that heat? This is the Middle East we're talking about, folks. The, the sun beats people like slaves over there. It's 23 hours with no air conditioning? Oh, Lord have mercy on them. Yeah. Or I guess they would say Allah, but <laughs> but um to try to alleviate this problem, they have signed an agreement with Iraq, and they're gonna buy Iraqi oil in exchange for Iraqi citizens having access to Lebanese healthcare services. And now, from what I read, Iraq's oil is not compatible, or Iraq's crude oil, I should say, is not compatible with Lebanon's refineries, um, so that probably means that Lebanon's refineries aren't um, strong enough to handle the thickness of Iraq's crude, because if it was the other way around, there wouldn't be a problem. Um, well, there wouldn't be much of a problem, it just wouldn't be the best use of your equipment. If you have super heavy refining equipment, you can refine lighter crude, it just, you, you've over-invested into your refining equipment, that's the problem. But if you can't do it at all, then that means the crude is too thick for the ref Lebanon's refining capabilities. So instead, what they're going to do is they're going to take, they're going to buy the oil from Iraq and then sell it for in exchange for um, money that they'll use to buy oil that they can use. Um, pro gamer moves being made by the Lebanese and Iraqi governments um, sell oil that you need to make money and trade that for healthcare because people are getting a, a bit restless in Iraq and on the part of Lebanon, uh, buy oil so that you don't have 23 hour long power outages. Um, except the oil is not useful to you so you sell it in exchange for money and then sell the money in exchange for oil that you can use. Really, really complex plays being made here. Um, but I guess, I guess severe economic and social crisis really does push things like this along now, doesn't it? Um, and I guess an interesting thing to note here with this interaction between Lebanon and Iraq, is the Iranian sphere of influence. I mean, we talked about it. We know that these two countries are encompassed within it. So, to see them interacting with one another on such short notice, I'll say, short notice and on ease of terms, because they put this through really, really quickly, um, shows you that there may or may not be active incentive on the parts of the countries within Iran's sphere of influence to remain a part of it. Um, whether or not the, these folks recognize themselves as being a part of that sphere of influence yet, um... I don't believe they do, but that just means we're ahead of the curb in seeing it. So, we have the Iranian sphere of influence interacting and co-mingling with one another, which is good for, you know, Iran. When you're building a sphere of influence, you want the constituent parts to not fight each other. So that's really good. And probably, there'll, there'll probably be some sort of larger block that is formed off of these countries. Um, uh, again, for those who don't know, I, the strip of land going from I Iran to Iraq to Syria to Lebanon, that's sort of the core sphere of influence for Iran, with, the, with Jordan and the Houthis in Yemen being sort of um, exclaves, where Iran also has influence as well. But this is sort of the, the core strip that gets all the attention and all the love. And they're interacting with one another. And they're integrating with one another. And I'm sure Iran will be more than happy to facilitate this. Uh, especially whenever those infrastructure projects um, from the Belt and Road Initiative make their way through the mountainous terrain of Iran. Um, and become able to link up with 
potential future projects in the Middle East because Iran opens the door for the entirety of the Middle East to sign on to the Belt and Road. Um, it's just a matter of snaking all those project, all those roads and railroads through the mountains. Once you get them through, you can go to uh, north through Turkey and get to Europe. You can go straight east and go through the flat desert of Iraq and Syria and Lebanon. And I think that that'd be a very attractive solution for a lot of these countries. You'd have the infrastructure and you'd have the infrastructure for Iraq to enable them to export their crude oil, more of it. Uh, to the great largest importer of crude oil, which is China, by way of the Belt and Road. They would have an incentive to do so. The infrastructure would help rebuild Syria and get, give the people there something to work on that isn't shooting at each other and help piece the country back together by way of infrastructure. There's an incentive. And Lebanon is in really, really, really bad shape uh, economically right now. So they might sign on as well, seeing the benefits of potential growth in the future. So there's real opportunity here for the Belt and Road to expand. And when you see crisis like this and sort of the quick actions and the desperate actions being taken, you see sort of how how little is left off the table. Um, I'm sure back in, what was it? The 50s and 60s, when Lebanon and the Middle East got independence from their former colonial masters, Britain and France, they would have never imagined taking help from them ever again. But here we are, when Lebanon is... is they're desperate to get that French economic aid plan. They're desperate to enact it. And that's the goal behind putting their new government together and their governing coalition. So, in these crises that we see, we understand that very little is taken off the table. Suddenly, everything is on the table. So, it's in moments like these, when you look out for the little things that have really big implications later on down the line, and we keep track of spheres of influence here, and we can sort of see how a lot of them are interacting, and I guess what I've just laid out, which is the potential for the Belt and Road to run from Iran straight to the Mediterranean, going through Iraq, Syria, and Lebanon, um, could, again, could bring China into Lebanon's crisis, and that was the condition, if the Belt and Road could be built there. Um, that was the condition for Chinese influence in Lebanon. But for the time being, Lebanon has settled on the French plan. But what if the French plan fails? Because we know that if it succeeds, France is going to gain ridiculously outsized influence and favorability there. And may even pull a China and establish a base um, for either their navy or their, just the army. Maybe they'll get an air base. Something along those lines, and in exchange for forgiving part of the debt that Lebanon will probably incur from taking the loans. But what if it fails? The flip side of that. If it fails, well, France doesn't lose too much. It's Lebanon. Um, France has influence in other places around this region, namely Cyprus and Greece, who are NATO members. Or at the very least, I know, I know Greece is not entirely sure if Cyprus is, but France has influence there, and if push came to shove, they could use those places to project their power, and I'm sure the Greeks wouldn't be too opposed to letting France do that if Turkey got really aggressive again, which they are getting. So losing Lebanon wouldn't be too big of a blow to the French sphere of influence, which currently encompasses um, Quebec and Canada, and basically all of West Africa right now. <clears throat> basically all of West Africa is within the French sphere of influence. It's huge. Uh, looks eerily reminiscent of the old French Empire. 
Um, but it is not quite as big, but it's huge. It's still really, really big. Um, Quebec being to France what like the Houthis are to Iran, sort of an exclave where they have influence, just not the same level of influence. But um, so France wouldn't lose too much in losing Lebanon, but that leaves the question: who would gain? Because if they're economic recovery plan doesn't work, then Lebanon's in debt and they've failed to resuscitate the economy, which opens the doors for even greater desperation on the part of the Lebanese government and the blunder of French failure will itself invite newcomers into the region to expand their own influence. Because right now, we see everyone being tame. Turkey's being tame. Arabia's being tame. Iran is being tame. Israel is still preoccupied, and they're being tame. Everyone's being tame. But if France... Uh, and that's enabling France to sort of just run away with this. But if France fails, no one's going to be tame anymore. Everyone's going to look at the situation. It's going to draw attention to it. And some... Some opportunistic soul in the region is going to say, well, maybe I should step in. And my best guess is that'll be Turkey. And it may even be China as well, for the reasons of the Belt and Road expanding there that I've laid out. We could see the competition here play out, really, if this French economic recovery plan doesn't work. And... That would be both good and bad for Lebanon in a multitude of ways. One, um, namely, you, you don't want the economic recovery plan to fail. But two, it would open up new sponsors um, who would be actively interested in Lebanon. Now, and that would bring in a lot of foreign influence into the country, which they would definitely not appreciate. But they'd be in a desperate situation. In desperate times, everything's on the table. So we, Lebanon is definitely still every bit as interesting as I have discovered it to be. And we'll keep our eyes on it. But for now, we'll move on. Um, move on to Israel. I br just talked about them. Uh, I said they are preoccupied. Here's what they're preoccupied doing. They're launching more airstrikes on the Gaza Strip right now. And there was a skirmish that happened between an Israeli soldier and some civilians in Gaza, some of those civilians died. So none of this is really working well to Israel's public perception around the world. Um, I'll just say that right off the bat. This is, this is absolutely terrible PR for them. And why wouldn't it be? These, there are people, innocent civilians, dying because Hamas is hiding behind the bodies of those innocent civilians. And it's really hard to fight a force like that without hurting the innocent. But Israel got hit with a bunch of rockets, so I don't imagine that public perception is at the top of the list of their concerns right now, but it's definitely something that we as outside lookers can take note of um, because it can, if it gets too bad, it can breed foreign intervention, which I'm not entirely sure the United States is going to save Israel from. Maybe someone else will, um, but if it goes this way, I don't think that'll be the case. Israel will may or may not end up fighting all of its neighbors at the same time again. Excuse me. May or may not fight all of its neighbors again. Uh, and it may lose. It may lose. That's a possibility. Especially if someone like, say, Turkey steps in. Turkey has a growing navy in the Mediterranean. It's been really, really quiet about that buildup. Really, really quiet about the bases that they've established um, in and around the Suez Canal region um, for their navy. Really, really quiet buildup. Everyone's focusing more on the Chinese naval buildup. No one is paying any attention to Turkish naval buildup. And one day, 
they'll do something that will catch everybody's attention and then everybody's going to be paying attention to Turkey's Navy and no one will have a response to it because everyone ignored it and it's just going to run rampant through the eastern Mediterranean because once you have a critical mass like that and of local numerical superiority um, a single French destroyer isn't going to be able to stop you from drilling for oil and natural gas anymore you would have superiority we'll see if the Turkish get around to building aircraft carriers or perhaps buying them from say China hmm hey it's a possibility it's a real possibility if they don't want to build it themselves because it's really complicated the Chinese are building them and they're getting better and better I mean, back in the day people would purchase um, destroyers and ships from other countries they would purchase it from a company that would build it that company would license the construction to entities in other countries to build it for them and then those ships would sail to their home countries um, namely the dockyards in the United States and Britain were notorious for building these vessels um, I remember the Japanese I was watching this video that the Japanese when they were doing their naval buildup they were doing these really these really intricate designs for their ships and some of those designs outpaced the designs that the British were using at the time and they were having the British shipyards build their ships so the Japanese Navy was being constructed in Britain so you can see now sort of sort of a parallel to that potentially being on the horizon if if countries decide to go down that route China's building lots of ships we get commercial ships from other countries all the time and as we sort of head back to the older way of doing things that imperial competition and whatnot we may see countries buying ships warships from other countries again that will have major ramifications that I can't quite predict of I just know it'll catch a lot of attention if it happens or rather whenever it gets around to happening because I'm not entirely sure how far away a shift to this era is going to be where we can see it now sort of we can see some of the some of the precursors to it right now so how long it'll take to get to that sort of an era I'm not convinced it'll take too long yeah. We'll wait and see, but we have lots of things going on. Lots of things going on. Israel is in the shits, and it doesn't look like they're going to get out anytime soon. They're basically fighting a guerrilla war on their own soil right now. So they're effectively out of the game of Middle Eastern politics, which is huge. That is, in and of itself, huge. They're preoccupied, which leaves Iran wide open. It leaves Arabia wide open, but Arabia is retrenching right now um, from their failed conquests. And by conquest, I mean their failed expeditions in, say, Yemen and Syria and Iraq. So they're pulling back right now. And Iran is expanding. And they're helping their neighbors. They're helping their sphere of influence. Um, we'll see if they get around to helping Lebanon, though. We'll definitely see. But Iran is building itself up. They signed on to the Belt and Road. But um, that's that's the Middle East I've gone off into a tangent on. Gone off into a tangent. But, eh. <laughs> um, what can I say? Very, lots of interesting things going on. I, I, I guess I'm just paying attention to enough of it to sort of step back and see a bigger picture. Maybe. Um... But on we talked about France um, as in a sort of a geopolitical sense, but France at home seems to be teetering on the edge. They're, they're on the edge. I'll just say that. You have masses of people who are rejecting the vaccine passport laws that have been signed into law and supported by French President Emmanuel Macron, um, much to their anger. So you have protests, you have riots... Um, I'm pretty sure the yellow vests are still there. 
it's it's an increasing mess in France and no one can predict where this is going to go other than Emmanuel Macron may or may not lose the election um which they're in an election year right now I'll just remind all the listeners here they're in an election year so everything that both he and his primary competition um his primary competition ah Le, Marin, Marine Le Pen there we go Le Men. Marine Le Pen is his primary competition so there's Macron and Le Pen everything they do from as of what April of a couple months ago everything they do shall be viewed through the lens of presidential election everything they do shall be viewed through the lens of an election year because France's presidential elections are in May this upcoming May so these lockdowns are hurting Macron the passport the vaccine passport hurting Macron and by definition almost by extension by reflex even it's helping Le Pen she's neck and neck with him in their polls I I won't focus too much on polls um, but they are sort of interesting to look at from time to time but she's either equal to him or she may even have blown past him in terms of support she may have and only election day will show us uh, the truth really how things really plan out not plan how things really pan out that's the final poll the definitive poll how the election goes that's and that's how you know for certain uh, how people really feel tell me how you really feel so everything they do shall be viewed through the lens of election year and everything macron is doing right now is really really hurting him he may be on the way out he may be sh- on his way out we may not see f- or hear from him for quite some time um in about a year we, we may be talking about someone completely different maybe it'll be le pen maybe it'll be some new guy that pops up and just steals the show from both of them but right now france is on the edge and a lot of this tension is going to show up in the elections because um, that's where it's going to be channeled through and that in and of itself given what we've seen in other elections in other countries may spawn even greater discontent if one side loses and believes that they've been cheated. Uh, Case in point, Myanmar. So, the election may not be the end of the crisis. Well, it won't be the end of the crisis, but it may not be the end of the political crisis, but rather just another step, uh, another piece of coal added to the fire is what it could end up being depending on how the election goes and sort of the stories surrounding it <clears throat> but um that's france um probably on the verge of another revolution we'll see if uh, a napoleon rises up out of all this uh hopefully not if you're the rest of europe but you know when you're observing this it's very inter- entertaining to watch meanwhile <laughs> there's a there's been clashes with boko haram in northern Cameroon, and it's left anywhere from six to eight soldiers dead. That's sort of the estimate range that I've seen. I've seen stories say six, one said seven, and the other said eight. Well, the local governorship says eight, so that's the range six to eight soldiers are dead. Um, so lots of militancy in Africa, namely between the nations themselves and sort of Islamist factions that would very much like to not be under the rule of the current government and would instead like um, a fundamentalist Islamist um, view to be imposed over the country. So they're up in arms and they're working indirectly with one another 
it's not like a super super duper coordinated effort but they definitely talk with one another and associate to certain degrees um, given s sort of common interests with one another and we can see that across Africa you have lots of these groups just running rampant really um, I know Mozambique uh, is chief among them they've asked for help it, it got so bad that they've asked for help um, France is actively trying to put down Islamist movements um, the, mil the militant Islamist movements I should say in all of West Africa and that leaves Central Africa wide open really because no one's there um, France is a bit ex overextended they'd be even more overextended if they tried to go for Central Africa um, no one's there and I guess, but uh, it's really, really jungly over there, so you don't hear too much about it. It's a, a remote region of the world, so news from there doesn't make it up as much, but we can see the general trend that there's lots of Islamist militancy throughout the continent of Africa, and it's threatening major destabilization like i know a lot of these conflicts have been going on for a really really long time but given some of the current events that we add on top of those like for instance the civil war in libya getting more and more foreign intervention um it does look like that one's attempting to come to a close um we'll see how the militias respond to that because ultimately they're gonna have the final say so they have to stop shooting at each other in order for the war to really end. So we'll see how the Libyan civil war comes to a close, if it does. All right. Well, we'll hope that it does. I believe their vote is um, the 24th of this December um, on the interim government. So we'll, we'll see on Libya. But for the time being, they're still fighting. We have unrest in Tunisia, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. We have um, a looming crisis over Egypt, you know, the Nile River and the Renaissance Dam. You have this Tigray War in Ethiopia, and Ethiopia went from winning to getting its ass kicked, and now they're in retreat almost as fast as Afghanistan is from the Taliban. And that has been a shocking reversal, a really, really shocking reversal. I wasn't expecting this to come out of Ethiopia. Um, I was expecting them to have to fight a really long, grindy war against the Tigray rebels to finally, you know, put them down and secure the region. That's what I expected was going to happen um, because the region is mount hilly, mountainous, and there's plenty of places to hide. I was not expecting the Ethiopian military to get uh, decimated, humiliated, and destroyed and for the Tigray Rebellion to just start running rampant and expanding the conflict into the neighboring regions. Um, what do I know I have it over here. The Afar region. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah, the Afar region is the, the place where the conflict has gone to now. And we have 54,000 people fleeing from the region because um, the war is coming to them, and they really would appreciate not being in a war zone. Um, so you can imagine the numbers probably fleeing from Afghanistan right now. Um, there were thousands caught in the Turkey's border with Iran, so there's probably even more that have fled directly into Iran, and maybe even, even into Pakistan. So you have these crises, you have these refugee crises that spawn from the wars, <laughs> and it's it's a lot it's really a lot to try to keep track of um i know i know um there's been lots of calls for some sort of intervention into the tigray war and i know the ethiopian government tried to declare a ceasefire uh, I, that didn't work out too well yeah I figured it wasn't because it was unilateral, and I'm like, oh, well, they're winning now, so they're not going to agree to this. And the same is going to happen with 
the Taliban, I'm pretty sure, they're winning now, and everyone wants to have talks now. They're, the Taliban is winning the war, objectively, and they're just dogging all, they're taking dumps. They're teabagging on the bodies of the Afghan military. And suddenly, everybody is calling for them to um, have talks for a peaceful solution to the crisis, to finally bring an end to the, the civil war. And I'm I'm sitting here like, oh, they'll bring in they'll bring an end to this civil war, right? They're gonna win. That's how they're gonna bring an end to the war. Um, I, I maybe I'm just the weird one, but I I viewed the those calls for mediation to be pretty silly, honestly. They seem a bit late to the party. The party's almost over. The punch is gone. The nachos are gone. Um. The, all the beer cans are empty, and the cooler has nothing left in it, um, but melted ice. And there's drunk people asleep on the couch. The party is almost over. Uh, it's a bit late for mediation right now. At this point, the Civil War is just going to come to a close. So, we, we see stuff like that, uh, and we'll pro- we may see something like that in Ethiopia. And Tigray might end up being the winner. That'll be a shocker. A real shocker. And it'll be interesting to see how they deal with the governance after that. Whether they secede or if they establish themselves as being the dominant ethnicity of the country. We'll have to see. Meanwhile, we have Russia delivering 88 tons of humanitarian aid to Cuba. They're carrying food. They're carrying um, food, water, um, masks, and personal protective equipment, so PPE. And Mexico is also making preparations to deliver aid as well. And good things for Cuba. Uh, We'll see if the Cuban government hands those provisions to the people who are currently revolting against them. I don't think those provisions are going to make it to the people. Uh, I think the government's going to sit on them. And they're gonna have a really bad time i'll just say that they're they're already having a really bad time if we're being honest but uh you know worse is always a possibility so we'll definitely keep our eyes on cuba and i may do a a full update on the events in cuba next episode i'll definitely put that in the notes but um we'll move on back to the middle east where the saudis have shot down three houthi drones um, so, uh, I guess the Houthis are good on the defense and maybe not too good on the offense, but hey, you kicked the Saudis out of your country, so what more do you need? Meanwhile, Russia and the Russian and Tajik defense ministers have met to discuss ways on how to deal with the fallout from the war in Afghanistan. Um, And most likely, what they're talking about is how to deal with the large numbers of refugees fleeing the country. Russia is really anal about their border security. So, the last thing they want is to have people coming through illegally. And one of the things that Russia is also extremely sensitive to is Islamic militancy. um, Radical Islamism. They're really, really upset about the existence of those and would they're really really sensitive to having any of that on their soil because of Chechnya and what happened in the 90s with Chechnya where they fought wars against them wars against Islamic radicals in Russia when they bombed buildings and kidnapped people in schools Russia has about negative numbers of tolerance towards these ideologies so the last thing that russia wants is for people from countries where this ideology is reigning supreme to come through their exposed flanks and get into the country their greatest exposed flank being the wide open of central asia their border with kazakhstan is ridiculously huge and kazakhstan's border with its southern neighbors are ridiculously huge Neither of them can manage it, and neither of their neighbors can manage it either from the other way around. Tajikistan, however, is small. Its population is decently large. 
and they can control the border um, because they have a very thin border with Afghanistan. So Russia's basically sh saying control the border or else. And I'm sure Tajikistan is more than happy to comply without threats, but I'm sure there was very veiled threats there as well, given given how serious Russia takes um, its border security. So, all that and more. Meanwhile, meanwhile, we have lots of floods and natural disasters that have really just been rocking the world. Uh, India and China in particular have been hit with floods. Um, Sochi was hit with floods as well. That's in Russia. There are floods in the Philippines. There were floods in Northern Europe. We talked about it last episode in um, Germany and the Netherlands and Belgium. And now it's getting to Austria. There was an earthquake off the coast of Florida. I don't think it caused the flood, but yeah, yeah an earthquake nonetheless. What's next? A volcano? Uh, I'm sure the Indonesians will be really happy about that one. <laughs> But yeah, lots of natural disasters around the world, and it's really, really messing people up. Meanwhile, the U.S. military has begun carrying out airstrikes on Al-Shabaab in Somalia. This is, uh, I re read that this is the second airstrike they've carried out in the last week. Uh, on the other side of Africa, Sierra Leone has voted to abolish the death penalty. I guess that's pretty good, you know. There were there was discussions of that in America whether or not we should keep it. It'll probably get deferred to the states though, um, whether or not a state has the death penalty. That's where I see it going. But you know, it's not a crisis. You know, it's nice to see stories where you just have a a normal something normal happen. Oh, the government has voted to pass this law, and it didn't piss off the entire country. I was like, okay. Well, you know, that's nice. You know, that's nice. And, and then we go back to the chaos where we have Azerbaijan accusing Armenia of killing one of its soldiers with a sniper uh, on the border. So they, they're they still going at it, but they're both occupied by Russia, so they can't really go at it. So they, they have to just um, talk shit to each other is what's happening now. And really it's more Azerbaijan talking shit to Armenia than the other way around. The Armenians probably feel safe enough not to talk back because they have Russia controlling who can and can't enter into these countries, which basically makes them parts of Russia unofficially. That's my stance, you know. Um, when a country controls your borders for you, those aren't your borders anymore. Those are their borders. So, as far as I'm concerned, these are these two are just unofficial Russian republics within the Russian Federation, the Greater Russian Federation. Ho ho ho! There, there's Russia's new imperial name right there, the Greater Russian Federation. There we go. So, what does that? The Auto the Neo Ottoman Empire, New Persia, the Greater Russian Federation. It, it it's all coming together, you know. It's all coming together. And the Chinese renamed their party to the CPC rather than the CCP. I have yet to look up what the specifics of the abbreviation means, but I'll probably have it in time. So everyone's going through their little renamings, you know. It's fitting. It's fitting. New era. New me. But uh, it's all coming together, folks. It's all coming together. And I'll definitely start referring to them by their new names in time. We got the Taliban going to their... I'll, I'll eventually have to start calling them by their official name when they've won, which is the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. You know, It's all coming together. It's all coming together. But uh, uh, while we're still on the topic of Azerbaijan and Armenia, um, Azerbaijan has sentenced 13 Armenian prisoners of war to th 13 years on accounts of... Illegal border crossing, terrorism, and weapons possession. So basically they threw the book at them 
with things that were technically true, but under the circumstance were very understandable. Um, you know, a war. So they threw the book at them and now they're, they're, they're stuck for 13 years and probably that's done to smite Armenia. Maybe the Armenians will do something in response. Maybe Nagorno-Karabakh will do something in response. Ooh. Ooh, we'll definitely keep our eyes on this region, you know. If it gets worse, the Russians will just step in harder and probably officially make them of Russian republics. Who knows? Who knows what greater Russian will, rep, the greater Russian Federation is going to do. But that's the rapid, that's the not so rapid fire news. And we'll get to the meat in just a moment. And we are back here to talk about, um, the world burning still, um, but we're talking about two specific countries as we close out the episode. Um, we'll talk about Tunisia and then we have Nigeria. As two developments here have caught my attention and have, in the case of, well, both of them, major implications for their future. For Tunisia, it's uh, major implications both within Tunisia and for the countries outside of it. And for Nigeria, it's more of an internal thing. So we'll start with Tunisia. So, major, major protests and riots have broken out across the country. Um, mainly calling for the government, and that would be the governing coalition, to step down from power. Um... Amidst these riots, the offices of the Ennahda the Anada party, uh, which is an Islamist party that happens to be the largest party in the Tunisian parliament, those offices of this party have been attacked uh, as the rioting went on. And there's been, obviously, there's been clashes between, <clears throat> excuse me, clashes between people protesting and the police. The crisis... Um, got bad enough um, both outside the parliament and inside the parliament that Tunisia's president has dismissed the government and froze the parliament last Sunday. So, yesterday, as of when I'm recording this. Um, so that's obviously a sign that things are definitely not okay. And... Well, what more can you say to that? It's, the world is on fire, I guess. Um, the unrest, though, seems to stem primarily from the massive unemployment in the country, which was a direct result of economic lockdown, uh, which the country's been in since last year. And maybe this is the reason we're seeing a lot of similar phenomenon going on around the world. I guess the people have reached sort of a, a breaking point now with these lockdowns. And probably one of the reasons why here in the States we're kind of sidestepping a great deal of a lot of these um, anti-government protests right now. Um, there are protests here just of different natures. Um, and that's namely because we're opening up um, a lot faster, instigated namely by states like Texas and Florida who have opened up before everyone else. And South Dakota never locked down, if I'm not mistaken. So we've sort of had a pushback from, to lockdown from the very beginning. And now we have pushed back to a renewed lockdown. Or even going back to some lockdown measure by the existence of these states that have opened up completely. I'm in uh, Illinois and it took us a while, but now we're opening up. Um, quite a bit. I know they got rid of the mask mandate. Uh, and that took a while to set into effect. Now when I go to work, don't have to wear it. And, eh, you know, it's one less thing I have to carry with me on my walk. But, um, it's taken a while, but we're at a point now where lockdown is just not even on the radar anymore. Unless you're California. That's the situation in the States. And... Perhaps, you know, in semi-hindsight, because these things are still going on right now, in semi-hindsight, that's the reason we in here in the United States have sidestepped a lot of this 
political turmoil. We have our own troubles, but these specific troubles we've managed to avoid. And it is my belief, as of right now, that the difference in lockdown has made all the difference, period. Because a lot of these countries um, were opening up much slower. You have France going into harsh lockdown. Britain is still um, where they were locked down. I believe they're ending their lockdown either this week or they ended it last week. Um, So they're among the few countries that have undone or are close to finishing undoing their lockdowns and their COVID restrictions. And we see that they have much less in the way of these protests. They have these protests, they're just lesser than what we see in places like France or Lebanon or Tunisia, where the president has dismissed the government and froze the parliament. And again, government is the governing coalition within parliament. Uh, so he dismissed them and then froze the parliament so no one can replace them. Um, that's either a power play or something's really, really wrong. Again, the unrest is probably from the massive unemployment due to lockdown. Um, but the crisis has gotten bad enough that the EU has taken notice and have called for the parties involved to follow the Constitution. And this whole situation here is very eerily reminiscent of another story that we followed from beginning to end. Uh, the first story that we've been able to do that with. And that was the political crisis in Nepal, where we had something, again, eerily similar happen. We had the prime minister, though. It was the prime minister, not the president. He he dissolved the parliament, and the courts ruled against him, and he was ultimately forced to let the parliament step back in um, because the parliament was going to remove him. He was forced to let them come back. And he said that they would accept whatever they said um, with regards to his legitimacy. Um, But then there was an election in Nepal and he was voted back in. Um, He was never removed, but, you know, it was sort of a confirmation that he got to stay. And so that was sort of the end of the political crisis there. But here in Tunisia, the president has has dismissed the parliament and frozen it. And we'll see where it goes. Maybe it'll go somewhere similar. Maybe it'll go in a different direction. Um, But again, very, very reminiscent of what happened in Nepal. And looking at Tunisia's neighbors, uh, that similarity also spawns similar concerns of potential foreign interference in Tunisia's political crisis. At the top of that list, we have... France and Turkey. I'm starting to notice a pattern here. I think we will have a great power rivalry between these two. And you know, that's a that's a new one for France, isn't it? I know. I know they have a really long list <laughs> of rivals, but I think this one's a new one. Um I don't remember France being particularly opposed to the Ottomans um, in a geopolitical way. You know, obviously they were opposed religiously, um, but they didn't really cross paths all that much um, until Turkey, until the Ottomans were in steep decline and they were losing control over Egypt uh, and France and Britain stepped in. And then obviously there was World War One. So those are about it. Um, So we may be witnessing the birth of a new great power rivalry. And these are the two who are going to, who are basically going to run the table, really. There's no one else active. Italy could step up. Spain could step up. But Spain is looking to Africa right now. Uh, and not this specific region in Africa. They're not looking at Tunisia. They're not looking at Libya. They're not. They're certainly not looking at the Eastern Mediterranean. So, and Portugal obviously doing the same. 
well, I guess not obviously, but for similar reasons, they're not invested in Tunisia, Libya, or the Eastern Med, which leaves those to be contested between France, Turkey, and maybe Russia, and maybe United States uh, on the off occasion here and there. Or maybe Britain, you know, Britain does like sailing its warships where it really shouldn't, like in the case of the Crimea incident a couple weeks back. But I think we're witnessing the birth of a new great power rivalry. These two, France and Turkey, are top of the list of countries I see stepping in to this political crisis in Tunisia. And for a couple reasons, both of them were former colonial rulers over this region. Both are involved in the nearby Libyan civil war. And both of them are still actively seeking to expand their influence. And they're looking towards old territories to do so. France was in Lebanon. Turkey was also in Lebanon. So I'll see if they go there. Turkey used to own Cyprus. And look at where they're going now. They're going after Cyprus. Turkey used to own Libya and Tunisia uh, at the biggest extent of the Ottoman Empire. They're backing the government there. What's to stop them from going one step further and going after Tunisia? France used to own Tunisia um, more recently than the Ottomans did um, with the French North Africa. So they're potentially going to be here, and it's right across, it's straight south from France itself, so they may see it as being more integral to their being than maybe Turkey would, but that wouldn't stop Turkey from trying. We could be seeing the birth of a great power rivalry that will define uh, Mediterranean politics, because that's sort of the, the tectonic plate that's where these two tectonic plates meet, the Mediterranean. And as Turkey quietly builds up its navy, it will become a stronger and stronger force within this enclosed sea that is the Mediterranean. So we could, we could be seeing something really huge rise up out of all these smaller conflicts, all these smaller crises that may be the building blocks to something bigger that we'll probably be taking notes on in history class. Because history does not end. And I think the chaos in Tunisia will invite uh, stabilizers that will themselves breed a new type of chaos in the form of great power rivalry. But moving on to Nigeria, though, Nigeria is in a bit of a different circumstance um, because here we have a Nigerian separatist leader, and I'm going to try to pronounce this, Nambi Kanu. Nambi Kanu, um, that's the best I'm going to get. So Nambi Kanu has been set for a treason trial um, in October. Kanu leads an organization that aims for the independence of the Biafra region in southeastern Nigeria. Um, however, his organization has been designated as a terrorist organization by the Nigerian federal government. Now, his trial was supposed to happen last week, but the court ruled and I believe it was the judge, not necessarily the court, but the judge adjourned the court until October. And the main thing here was they cited logistical issues which hindered Nigeria's ability to securely transport this man to stand trial. Because I guess where he is right now, where he's being detained, um, the area around that is dangerous and they don't want him to get loose because he might just flee. Or if something happens to him, he might become a martyr, and that could spawn a that could open up a new can of worms and a a new Pandora's box that they may or may not be able to close. And we have brought up rebel groups in the in Nigeria's. Uh, let me let me go back. 
We've talked about Nigeria dealing with these sorts of militant uprisings before. Usually in passing, whenever we talk about them, it's usually um, they're dealing with this type of thing in their northwest. But here we have them dealing with separatist movement in their southeast, the complete opposite um, direction, which I'd imagine is definitely fun for Nigeria's military logistics to have to deal with. Two separatist crises for the price of one. But um, we've brought this up multiple occasions, usually in passing. But what I came to this story for, and what really caught my attention here thinking about it, um, was that this trial here might have a bigger impact on Nigeria than I first thought when I grabbed this story. Because the story itself was interesting. Um, the separatist movements in the southeast on top of the rebels in the northwest. Just more problems for Nigeria to deal with. But when I was thinking about it, I realized the trial could have uh, a huge impact on the future sentencing for people in and associated with these types of groups in Nigeria. Said groups, um, militants, Islamist militants, or separatists, straight up separatists, be they violent or peaceful, affiliation with these groups may get you whatever this man is sentenced to. Said groups may then view this as oppression and become even more violent or go from peaceful to being violent or supporting violence. Um, and that isn't as far-fetched as it sounds now because given that the state, they're currently in a state of rebellion, these groups, um, they already don't recognize the federal government of Nigeria, and they certainly don't believe it has their best interest in mind. So, whatever happens to Nnamdi Kanu, and whatever he's sentenced to, that could set the precedent for how Nigeria will proceed with trying um, and convicting leaders of other separatist groups and organizations or people who are affiliated with these groups and organizations and maybe even they'll throw the book at you and just label your organization as being one of uh, or, or they could just label your organization as being separatist in nature and throw the book at you we don't know yet it could get to that point but that's sort of the extreme. But what I really wanted to focus on was that whatever this man is sentenced to could set the precedent for how Nigeria will deal with other separatist groups and the organizations and people affiliated with them. So, long-term implications for this little trial here. Well, well definitely try to keep my eyes on this one. I know I, I'm trying to keep my eyes on a whole lot of things, and one of the things that came to my mind earlier was what's going to happen with San Suu Kyi in Myanmar. Um, I've made my stance clear on how Myanmar needs to get that situation correct the first time, or they may not have an opportunity to get it the second time. But um. Lots of things going on around the world. The world appears to be on fire, but hey, we have the Olympics. I'll get around to watching it and get some good entertainment. But um, lots of lots of minor developments with big implications as we sort of take a step back and look at the chaos within context. Uh, the context of what we've what we already know and when we take a step back what we can see going down lots of militancy lots of unrest lots of economic issues lots of doors open um due to the desperation of hard times we could see a rapid rise in great power politics 
we're witnessing the birth of a new great power rivalry between France and Turkey. Um, and we're witnessing the end and of one civil war in Afghanistan, potentially the end of a civil war in Libya, potentially the um, a new phase of war in Ethiopia that may lead Ethiopia to lose. That would be humiliating. But all of this, I believe, all of this is, well, history. All of this is history, and we get to watch it. We get to watch it unfold. And when we take a step back, and when we take a step back for weeks and weeks and weeks, and we see how these things play out, we get to watch a movie, a history movie. It's very interesting. And maybe that's just because I'm a history nerd. Uh, but um, I won't apologize for being one. But that is all I have for today. I hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. The world is on fire. Uh, but we're going to have fun watching it burn together. And we'll see what it looks like on the other side together as well. So till we meet again next Monday, servus. Oh, and I, I'm Haishan Wade. You've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. I definitely didn't forget to say that. And till we meet again next Monday, servus.